Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, May 18th. These are today's headlines. I'm Carolina Sarasa. More than 200 people now dead, including at least 65 children, as fighting continues between Israeli forces and Hamas, the White House pledging support for Israel. Coronavirus infections dropping while new recommendations from the CDC on the use of a mask are causing confusion. All this as a number of major retailers abandon their mask policies. And the Supreme Court taking on abortion, agreeing to hear a major challenge to Roe v. Wade. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We began with this, with the ongoing crisis in the Middle East. Calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas keep on growing. However, there is no sign of an end to the violence. Andrea Linares has the latest. Israel and Palestinians are bracing for another day of protests after the first relatively quiet night without Gaza rocket fire in a week. Israel Defense Forces did not report any southern warning sirens from 11.15 p.m. until 5.34 a.m. Meanwhile, Israel releasing this video showing the Israeli Air Force targeting a Hamas rocket launching site. This morning, an unprecedented call for roughly 7 million Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank and within Israel to join a general strike. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the offensive will continue. A senior advisor for Netanyahu says Israel is doing things right. We say and we pride ourselves that we're attacking the Hamas military machine. We're trying to do it as surgically as we can in a com complex uh, uh, combat uh, environment where Hamas is deliberately using the, uh, the Gazan civilian population as a human shield. Gaza's infrastructure is now crippled. Gaza's electric companies saying the 140-square-mile strip is in danger of running out of power within days. America's lead diplomat on the conflict met the Palestinian officials Monday. They don't live in Gaza and don't control Hamas and want international pressure on Israel. We are following what is happening every second and we call on the international community to intervene to stop the aggression. But Israel has so far not responded to anyone. Health authorities in Gaza reporting they will run out of blood in 24 hours as ambulances transport new patients in. So far, at least 61 children have died. Well, that's the most disheartening and disturbing aspect of this, the, the death of innocents on both sides. Uh, that's why, again, uh, it, it, we're calling, uh, using our voices, the call for a ceasefire. We are ready to lend support if the parties see, uh, seek a ceasefire. We'll continue to conduct intensive diplomacy to bring this current cycle of violence to an end. In the meantime, Hamas rockets still reaching Israel's residents. This residential community in Ashdod was hit by rocket fire from Gaza. Three civilians were injured there. While President Biden has expressed his support for a ceasefire, he has also reiterated his firm support for Israel's right to defend itself against what he called indiscriminate rocket attacks. This happens as Biden faces increasing political pressure from Democrats to take a tougher approach on Israel and as the international community grows outraged over the treatment of the Palestinian people. 
In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And back in Washington, U.S. authorities investigating a mysterious illness that has affected at least two White House officials late last year. Some sources say several National Security Council members suffer sensory issues and physical symptoms very similar to what more than 100 U.S. spies, troops, and diplomats have experienced. The mystery has been nicknamed the Havana Syndrome. Some victims say they have had headaches, sudden vertigo, and head pressure. In Intelligence officials say they do not know what's causing these issues or if they can be deemed attacks. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a statement Tuesday saying the Biden administration has boosted their efforts to find out what is causing these health concerns and to prevent more cases from happening. Any news out of the Pentagon, Space Force commander has been fired after his appearance on a podcast criticizing the U.S. military. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer said that Mac Marx's ideologies are spreading through the armed forces. He appeared on the Steve Gruber podcast to promote a new book. He also criticized the New York Times 1619 project as anti-American. And as a result, Space Operations Command moved quickly to fire the commander, citing that they lost trust and confidence in his ability to lead. In other news, out of D.C., the Supreme Court agreed to take up a key abortion case next term that could pose a major challenge to Roe v. Wade. The case concerns a controversial Mississippi law that banned most abortions after 50 weeks. A federal judge struck down that law in 2018, but now that the court has a 6-3 conservative majority, it could set a new precedent that allows other states to enact similar strict abortion laws. Several states already have. South Carolina, Oklahoma, and Idaho passed the so-called heartbeat bills. This year, Arkansas and Oklahoma enacted near-total abortion bans, and Montana banned the procedure after 20 weeks. None of these bills end is in effect yet, with some tied up in court. Polling reveals a majority of Americans want Roe v. Wade to stay in place. And we now know how much the president and vice president paid in taxes last year. On Monday, the White House released the 2020 tax returns for both leaders. President Biden and the First Lady filed joint tax returns, reporting an adjusted gross income of more than $607,000. They paid a little more than $157,000 in federal income tax. The vice president and the second gentleman earned and paid more than the Bidens. They had an adjusted gross income of more than $1.6 million, paying under $622,000 in taxes. Now, in a statement, the White House said releasing the return is, quote, continuing an almost uninterrupted tradition, taking a dig at former President Donald Trump, who did not release his while in office. And Americans are facing a new dilemma about the use of a mask. The CDC's new guidance that vaccinated people do not need to wear one is creating confusion. Meanwhile, the Biden administration ramping up vaccine donations to help other nations. Lorraine Casares has the latest. 
down to their lowest points in the past 14 months. Today, for the first time since the pandemic began, cases, pandemic cases are down in all 50 states first time. According to the CDC, 60% of adults have received at least one dose of the vaccine. 47% are fully inoculated. Meanwhile, many Americans now facing a new dilemma, masks off or on. This after the CDC updated their guidance saying vaccinated Americans do not need to wear a mask indoors or outdoors. If you look at it, the science that evolved over the last few weeks that prompted the CDC to make the recommendations that people who were vaccinated should feel safe and be able to go indoors and outdoors without wearing a mask relates to the evidence of how effective these vaccines are, not only in protecting you against infection, but even if you have a breakthrough infection, the chances of your transmitting it to someone else is extremely low very, very low. The problem in the issue is that we don't have any way of knowing who is vaccinated and who's not vaccinated. And I think that's where the confusion arises. CVS Pharmacy and Target no longer requiring it for fully vaccinated customers. Starbucks, Publix and Walt Disney World also relaxing mask mandates. The Retail Industry Leaders Association says more guidance is needed to protect workers and shoppers, saying the current federal guidance creates ambiguity for retailers. We need clarity around how they're going to look at the enforcement of that. It should not fall to frontline employees to be mask police and certainly not vaccine police. Some experts worried the CDC's guidance was made prematurely. And what I fear is that we've just made life much harder and much riskier for people who are unvaccinated. Yes, some people are by choice, but a lot of people maybe haven't gotten around to getting vaccinated. Maybe they have gotten vaccinated but are immunocompromised and have not mounted the full immunity to the vaccine or parents of young children. Meanwhile, the president's now focused on helping other countries advance vaccination efforts. The country has already committed to sharing 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine with other countries by July 4th. Now, the Biden administration says it will also send at least 20 million more doses of Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J by the end of June. This means over the next six weeks, the United States of America will send 80 million doses overseas. That represents 13% of the vaccines produced by the United States by the end of June. This will be more vaccines than any country has actually shared to date. I feel that as a rich country, we really do have a moral obligation to play a major role in making sure that there are vaccines to those countries that can't afford to get the vaccines themselves. Overall, the United States reported on Monday 392 COVID-19 deaths. That's according to John Hopkins University's tally. 15 states on Monday did not report any deaths at all, and six states have been reporting less than one death a day for the past seven days. Carolina, back to you. And welcome back to you News. Hamilton, The Lion King, Wicked and Chicago are all set to reopen on Broadway this fall, but the reopening of New York's Metropolitan Opera is still pending. The Met is scheduled to have its season premiere this September, but thousands of its musicians, state hands, and designers have not reached a labor agreement for their return. They accuse the Met's management of demanding deep and lasting pay cuts they say are needed in order to survive the pandemic. 
And joining me now to talk about this is Teresa Gonzalez. She's a backstage worker at the Metropolitan Opera. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Carolina. Teresa, you have worked at the Met for at least 15 years. Can you describe for us what you do there? Well, I'm a member of United Scenic Artists, Local 829, and so my job entails supporting the artists that apply the paint and the texture and the scenery that, uh, um, on the stage that you see. And the Met shut down in March of 2020, and most employees were sent home without pay. What has been this year like for you, for your family? Well, like most artists throughout the industry, um, for myself, the, the pandemic shutdown brought a lot of uncertainty and um, a lot of juggling. Um, not only was this a moment of maybe being laid off for a little while, it was a complete shutdown industry-wide. On top of that, as a mother and as a wife, my daughter's school shut down, and then my husband being um, happens to be an FDNY EMS worker in New York. So where my industry shut down, my daughter's school shut down, he had the polar opposite experience of going into the busiest and most dangerous time of his career. So we were juggling a lot of uncertainty in my home. Of course, and now the Met is proposing a 20% pay cuts for stagehands in a statement mm -hmm. They said they will restore salaries when the box office gets to pre-pandemic levels. What does your union want to see? Well, um, I've also heard that statement. Um, what our union wants to see? Well, when we first began contract negotiations in early 2020, a lot of the things that the management of the Met has on the table was already on the table. So what part of what my union wants to see is the management not using the shadow of the pandemic as leverage to get what they were already asking for. Um, the language in some of, some of the contract paperwork that has been put on the table for us was language that was asked during the last contract negotiation. So um, to say that the management wants to wait and see a restoration of pre-pandemic levels, when pre-pandemic levels, they were already crying, that they needed to do um, drastic cuts and that the union labor was already costing them too much money. Um, there, There is a, a shadowing of the truth as to what is happening at the Met. And just on that, the Met says the proposed cuts are due to loss in revenue. This is what they said to us in a statement. Having lost more than $150 million in box office revenues over the past 14 months, we are facing the worst economic crisis in the history of the Met and must reduce our cost in order to survive. What do you make as a worker that has a family to provide for of that statement? Well, as a worker, um, as a mother, and as a joint income earner in, a, in this household, um, I hear what they're saying, but what they're saying is again, echoing what they've said in the past. Always if the fiscal crisis, existential crisis of the company is not generating the revenue that they're hoping for, they, they shift a lot of the attention to the labor costs within the building. We are not a union that does not um, understand that as a company, we need to all make sacrifices and we need to all find a, a middle ground and give back. We have coming off of contracts where we actually already took 0% cuts in the past. We have actually taken 
um, pay cuts, zero percent uh, increase and pay cuts in the past and cuts to our compensation in the past due to other uh, fiscal crises that have happened in New York City. This company as a family has pushed through and we have evolved and, and we survived. So now, yes, this is a unprecedented um, situation. The pandemic not only affected the Met, but it affected live arts industry worldwide. And we recognize that and we understand that. But like I mentioned, some of the, some of the contractual um, paperwork that they put in front of us was already on the table in early 2020, prior to the shutdown in March. So to say um, with some language behind the scenes that now with the pandemic, they have the, that they're saying that they have the leverage to finally get what they've been asking for for a decade is um, using is disingenuous and using a pandemic to, um, to their own gain. Well, thank you so much for your time. Teresa Gonzalez, backstage worker at the Metropolitan Opera, and I really admire everything you guys do every day. Thanks again. Thank you. And also in the Big Apple, a major relief effort for tenants could make a difference between staying in their homes or getting evicted. Fabiola Galindo explains. Miguel Rojas is walking home, but in his mind, he's worried. I owe some rent. I am behind, but they don't stop charging me, says the construction worker. He owes $400 in rent for a small room he shares with six people in one apartment in New York City. He's afraid of being evicted. For people like him, who live in the neighborhoods most affected by COVID, there's good news. The way the law was written, it allows anyone who lived for over 30 days in an apartment to become eligible for this aid, and it includes people who rent a room. This lawyer is referring to the rent assistance that will soon be available for tenants who were affected by the pandemic, even for those who are undocumented. You need to prove that you live in New York and your income must be 80% below the medium income in the area where you live. It applies to those owing rent between March of 2020 and today and who are at risk of losing their home. But there are still more questions unanswered, like when the state will begin to accept applications. It is estimated that over 1 million people in New York could benefit from the funds. If you do not have a lease, you can use receipts showing proof of payment, utility bills or a notarized declaration that you still occupy the unit. The money will be distributed directly to the landlords. There are many ways you can prove your identity, with a driver's license or a birth certificate or a certificate of baptism or school records. The applications have not been issued yet and activists are asking people for patience and awareness and to look out for possible fraud attempts. In New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. And the Biden administration has agreed to let about 250 immigrants a day to request asylum here in the U.S. This decision reverses the Trump administration order that drastically limited the number of people entering the country because of the pandemic. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. The reversal to the rule known as Title 42 is a direct response to a lawsuit filed by the ACLU 
Under Title 42, migrants requesting asylum at the southern border were quickly processed and expelled because of pandemic-related public health concerns. Lawyers with the American Civil Liberty Union say that the pandemic is no longer a valid argument to deny asylum. The lawsuit is also forcing the government to stop flying migrant families from the Rio Grande Valley to, in Texas to El Paso to then expel them to Mexico. The Biden administration has extended unaccompanied children from Title 42 but enforced it for single adults and many families. The administration will reverse the right to resume flights if the circumstances call for it. So far, the government and the ACLU agreed to a streamlined process for assessing and addressing abstention requests brought by particular vulnerable families and other individuals. Once the process is up and running, an estimated 250 vulnerable individuals will be allowed in daily to seek humanitarian protection. That precisely was one of the topics discussed in the meeting between Vice President Kamala Harris and the Hispanic Caucus in Congress. Harris made clear there is a lot of work to be done, but that this administration, according to her, is moving in the right direction. Take a listen. Bringing federal agencies together to enhance their focus or renew their focus in that region, ranging from the Department of Agriculture to um, Secretary of Commerce and, and hosting a virtual uh, trade mission, um, to the work that we are doing to bring American foundations in, to renew their interest in the region. In the meeting, the caucus brought up issues at the border with the latest crossings, and Harry said that's why they want to increase investment in the private sector in the Northern Triangle so that they can create more jobs and avoid having people leave their countries for lack of opportunities. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Carolina. Thank you for that live information, Edwin P.T. And meanwhile, along the U.S.-Mexico border in Roma, Texas, migrants crossing the Rio Grande are receiving a helping hand from the National Guard. Andrew Peña has more details. Families are continuing to cross the Rio Grande to Roma, Texas to seek asylum, although the numbers appear to be dropping compared to previous weeks. What has changed now is that upon arrival they are greeted by U.S. National Guard members who assist them as soon as they reach the U.S. side, especially the children who they carry in their arms, passing them from one soldier to another. We are happy with the way we are treated on arrival. In recent days, the National Guard set up a small camp on the banks of the Rio Grande, and over the last several nights, about a dozen guards have been seen helping migrants, some even shining their flashlights into the river to prevent polleros from having any issues with the families on board. When we saw that they were waiting for us and they helped us, it was a relief, a joy. Some migrants are overwhelmed with emotion when they arrive on U.S. soil, and between the prayers, they thank God. For others, like this Guatemalan mother, the fear of being sent back to Mexico terrifies her. We just want to work, to move forward. But there are also optimists who are happy to cross the border and call their families immediately. Like this young Honduran who spoke to his mother to notify her that he had already arrived in the United States. You tell Letty to Daddy and Yahaira that we are okay with the child. And while some soldiers wait on the riverbank for more migrants to arrive, others take them on foot, a half a mile walk to immigration agents who will start the process of determining whether they will be able to stay in the United States. Reported by Pedro Utreras in Roma, Texas, Andrew Peña, U News. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. No one would think this small restaurant in San Cristóbal de las Casas in the Mexican state of Chiapas is the kingdom of one of the best young chefs in the world. And Claudia Albertina Ruiz did not even study gastronomy. Here in Chiapas, there was only one school in the capital, and the truth is that it was very expensive, so I couldn't afford it. Claudia, a 33-year-old indigenous Sosil chef, is the only Mexican in included in 50 Next, the first list of new talents in the world of gastronomy, all under 35 years old. The list was created by the same people who ranked the best restaurants in the world. I used to see myself making big cakes, and then life suddenly plays tricks on you, and now I'm making traditional cuisine. She's now working in a restaurant she already owns and that even has a traditional stove. Her talent is so great that she has already worked with famous Mexican chef Enrique Olvera and she has already cooked for René Redzepi, one of the most renowned chefs on the planet. But not even being her own boss has protected her from discrimination. When I introduced myself and said I was indigenous, they ended up telling me, thank you very much, we have a restaurant, thank you very much, we're not interested right now. But the recognition of her mother, Veronica Santis, is more than enough. I'm happy for her because the truth is she's going wherever she wants, to other countries. Claudia was chosen among 700 other candidates and will receive her recognition next year in Bilbao, Spain. I'm happy to know that I can do something for my people. Reported by Jessica Cermeño, this is Azul Álvarez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.